Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet podcast. It's July the 20th and I'm Francesca Toey. Today we're discussing a new Lancet commission titled Dementia, Prevention, Intervention and Care. Joining me is the lead author of the commission, Professor Jill Livingston. Welcome. Please can you introduce yourself? Thank you, Francesca, and hello. I'm Jill Livingston, and I'm Professor of Psychiatry of Older People at University College London, and I'm also an honorary consultant psychiatrist at Camden and Islington NHS Foundation Trust. Please, can you provide some background as to how this commission began and the reasoning behind the need for this piece? Dementia is the most feared disease of older people. It causes not only disability and dependency for people with it, but it can also have a profoundly detrimental effect on family carers who are at high risk of developing depression and anxiety disorders. So around the world currently, around 50 million people have dementia now, with this figure projected to increase to 132 million by 2050. Dementia occurs mainly in the over 65, and the increase in numbers is largely driven by increased longevity, resulting from the welcome reduction in premature mortality. The cost of caring for people with dementia worldwide is now over 800 billion US dollars per year, and is expected to rise to 2 trillion US dollars by 2030. The Lancet editors therefore identified dementia as a neglected and important area and they asked me to lead the commission. I worked with 23 other international experts from a wide range of disciplines, assessing the evidence, undertaking new research and generating evidence-based recommendations on dementia, prevention, intervention and care. Our overall message is that acting now in dementia will vastly improve living and dying for people with dementia and their families. There's so much we can do now rather than focusing solely on the possibility of future care, a path that up to now has been rather disappointing. So as you said, there's more to dementia than just care, and your commission focuses on three areas, prevention, intervention, as well as care. So to start, we've got the prevention side, and you state that even though all forms of dementia aren't preventable, there are some potentially modifiable risk factors, and you've created this novel life course model of population attributable fractions of dementia. Can you discuss this model and the key points surrounding possible prevention of dementia? So lifestyle has a big impact on the risk of dementia development. We should be ambitious about the prevention of dementia as its prevalence would be halved if its onset was delayed by five years. As part of the commission, Nahid McAdam, Andrew Summerlad and I produced this novel life course model to situate the risk of dementia in the age groups which the evidence came from. This was to provide information about when to tackle the risk factors. Our analysis overall shows it's never too early and it's never too late for interventions to prevent or delay dementia. We generated this model by deciding a priori to use the list of risk factors from the National Institute of Health and Clinical Excellence and the National Institute of Health in the States, who had statements on the prevention of dementia. This generated a list of nine risk factors. These are less childhood education, hearing loss, hypertension, obesity, smoking, depression, physical inactivity, social isolation, and diabetes. We then calculated the population attributable fraction or PATH. This is a commonly used method to estimate the proportion of an illness that can be caused by and therefore theoretically could be prevented by eliminating a particular risk factor. It is derived from the size of the excess risk and how commonly it occurs in the population. However, it's a little bit more complicated than that as people frequently have more than one risk factor. 
for example, they may have diabetes, be overweight, smoke and be physically inactive. So the calculations have to take this communality of risk into account and our paper in the Commission explains the formula and method. We found that the overall path for dementia was over a third. That is, over a third of dementias are theoretically preventable, so that's huge. These factors work on the brain either by changing resilience, making people more or less liable to have a problem when the pathology occurs, or by direct damage on the brain. The biggest factor in our calculation was a lack of childhood education, which affects those in low- and middle-income countries more. Education in childhood is one way of building brain resilience. In addition, if we consider the individual vascular and metabolic-related group of smoking, obesity, physical inactivity, hypertension and diabetes together, we found out they made a larger risk than any individual cause. We're beginning to conceptualise some other factors together as those that might make a cognitively enriched environment, which even in adulthood may protect the brain against damage by building reserve and making the brain more resilient. These might be a reduction of hearing loss, social contact and education in adult life, which may work by making the environment more cognitively stimulating, although we aren't sure about this and we have little definitive information now. Within the Commission, Sergi Costa-Frida, one of the authors, led the first meta-analysis about the risk of hearing loss and future dementia, and that had never been done before. And we found that after education, it was the second biggest contributor to dementia. Although we have these nine risk factors, there are other possible risk factors that we didn't take into account in our model the evidence is still early about them. For example, visual loss and particulate pollution. And we await more evidence about these, but it seems likely that there are many other contributors. There are limitations to our data, which we discuss in more detail in the paper, but they do provide a focus for lifestyle factors, which may make a difference and provide more years of healthy life or prevent dementia ever occurring. Modifying these risk factors could translate into a large effect on the global burden of dementia, which would have huge implications for social and healthcare costs as well as for individuals. While public health interventions will not delay, prevent or cure all potentially modifiable dementias, these factors might push back the onset of many cases for some years. You mentioned hearing loss is one of the new ones that you've included. Social isolation was another factor that hadn't previously been included in available models. And although it doesn't have quite as high a percentage as hearing loss, it's still an important potentially modifiable factor. No, it wasn't as high as hearing loss, although we're talking about the whole population. So even something which has a low percentage translates into a lot of people. The second area you focused on was the interventions of dementia, and you discussed the importance of an early diagnosis, the effectiveness of interventions currently available, and areas where more evidence is needed. Can you discuss these interventions for us? I'd be delighted to. You talk about early diagnosis, and diagnosis is often delayed for complex reasons, such as people thinking that dementia is a natural consequence of ageing, but also stigma about the diagnosis, or an individual not noticing they're being forgetful, or a feeling among family or health professionals that a lack of cure means nothing can be done. That means that worldwide, fewer than half the people with dementia ever receive a diagnosis. And in low- and middle-income countries, less than 10% are diagnosed. 
So in addition, many people with dementia are diagnosed late in the disease when it's too late for them to make their own decisions about treatment or nominate people to be their power of attorney. So you could regard having the diagnosis as a gateway to possible interventions because otherwise people won't think of them or informing you about future decision making. So whilst therapies to modify the course of dementia are not currently available, much can be done for the symptoms. And within the commission, we describe interventions to maximise cognition, to treat other symptoms, to manage risk and, and to make these choices for the future. For example, people with Alzheimer's disease or dementia with Lewy bodies should be offered clonesterase inhibitors at all stages or romantine for severe dementia. And these drugs have a clinically important effect. Within this commission, we also provide algorithms to guide people about the management of depression, agitation and psychosis, all of which occur in dementia. Interventions are usually psychological, social and environmental with uh, drug treatment reserved for those with the most severe symptoms. Apart from the symptoms, people with dementia and society require protection from possible risks of the condition, including self-neglect, fire, vulnerability, including to exploitation, what might happen if they are not able to manage their own money and pay their own bills, driving or using weapons, though the use of guns is clearly a higher problem in some countries than others. Clinicians should assess and manage risk at all stages, and within there's always a delicate balancing act of the safety against a person's right to autonomy, which is an important right. When dementia is mild, decisions about everyday life, social care and medical treatment can usually be made by the person with dementia with support from family or friends. And people with dementia and their families value discussion about the future and help with the decisions about possible attorneys to make decisions for them in the future. Clinicians should consider capacity to make different types of decision at diagnosis. As the dementia progresses, the people with dementia lose the mental capacity to make more complex decisions and usually the family carer becomes the substitute decision maker. This can change the relationship of partners and reverse the role of parents with children. We provide guidelines for these assessments, keeping in mind jurisdiction-specific legal frameworks and guidelines. So overall, we look at symptoms, risk and how to manage decision making, all of which can make a great deal of difference. And then the third area that you focus on is care for not only the patients with dementia, but also for those family carers that you mentioned just there, who are during the late stages perhaps the most important resource available for people with dementia. Can you say some of the main points in your commission regarding the care? Well, I agree with you. Um, they are, but maybe they are the most important resource and not only during the later stages. So most people with dementia receive the majority of their care from their family and, and obviously care can bring emotional rewards, looking after someone whom you care about, but also it can make difficulties, it can be difficult as well. Family carers overall for people with dementia have worse physical health, more absences from work and report lower life quality than non-carers. Spouses of people with dementia are at increased risk of developing dementia themselves. So, as I said before, family carers are at a high risk of depression and anxiety disorders, with around 40% developing a clinically significant disorder and many others having symptoms of anxiety and depression, which are very negative about for their quality of life. And these symptoms affect not only the carer, but also their relative with dementia and wider society. 
because um, carer psychological symptoms, particularly depression, predicts a care breakdown as he can't manage to look after someone else and therefore the person might have to go to live in a care home. Most family members and their family like people to continue living at home as long as possible and we know that people with dementia generally have a better quality of life when they're able to do so. So knowing how to prevent or intervene with symptoms of depression in families is important. What usually works is a specialist, individual, tailored, multi-component psychological support to family carers and carers have to make active choices. Information by itself is not enough and is ineffective, although obviously important. So many passive interventions where people are in a group and are told about dementia are ineffective. So services should use interventions for which evidence is available. Active and effective interventions usually help carers understand that they can change the situation, but the person with dementia is not able as a consequence of their illness to change themselves. Effective interventions include START, which stands for Strategies for Relatives, and REACH, which are uh, resources for advancing Alzheimer's caregivers' health intervention. We detail them within the Commission. They reduce the risk of depression, treat the symptoms, and they should be available for family carers. The incidence of dementia is expected to rise in future years, with the highest increases in low- and middle-income countries. And you state in your commission that there isn't as much evidence from these countries compared with the high-income countries, which is why in your commission you have to focus on the high-income countries where there's more data. Do you think more research is needed in these low- and middle-income countries to prepare them for these future cases of dementia? Well, the short answer to that, the last question is yes, but let me start with the incidence. The number of people with dementia will rise because there's going to be more older people, but Incidence, that is the number of people per thousand in a specific age bracket developing dementia, may fall or rise as it has already in many countries, depending on the risks that we discussed before. Whatever it is, there will be more people with dementia globally. So if I take China as an example, because it's got the largest number of people aged over 80 in the world, Currently, there are around 23 million people aged over 80, and that's predicted to grow to 90 million by 2050. Poor awareness of dementia combined with stigma means that dementia is massively underdiagnosed in China. So a recent study found that 93% of people with dementia did not have a diagnosis. They also found that the carers had high carer burden, even when they didn't know that the person they were caring for had dementia. It's been pointed out that there's a different culture with a tradition for family-based care in China, so caring durations are likely to be considerably longer than the West, where there, as there's really no care homes. And in addition, the limitation in family size means there are less family members available to care. So overall, while illness is the same all over, research in low- and middle-income countries should specifically consider how interventions can be delivered and what resources are available, as well as the stigma of dementia and the specific cultural context. Interventions may have to start with the general education about what dementia is because awareness is relatively lower. In addition, we don't know how interventions devised in the West work in other contexts and they may have to be refined. Finally, within uh, low- and middle-income countries, there are few specialists to provide services for more than a tiny proportion of people with dementia, so more generic training of workers may be important. 
the research in all of these things to combat stigma, increase awareness and effectively deliver services within uh, LMIC is are really important in the future. Finally, what impact do you think your commission will have in the field of dementia or policy making? Is it to contribute, like you just said, to raising awareness and reducing the stigma? I think it should. I mean, the impact we want it to have is to improve life for people with dementia and their families because most families now have a member of the family who have dementia, an older member of the family having dementia really transform society. I think it will contribute to national guidelines and public health policy, as well as guiding individual practitioners' practice with the algorithms, really very practical everyday ways of thinking through difficult problems. I also hope it will help guide individual families knowing what to ask for and to um, and in public health to help put into place policies which may prevent many people ever having to deal with dementia as or help delay or prevent dementia. So that's my basic wish for it or our basic wish for it. Already I've been asked about the commission from the United States Alzheimer's Association Clinical Practice, NHS England, the Norwegian National Dementia Guidelines, the WHO. So I think it will influence and make a difference. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us about this commission which is available to read online and there will be another podcast from the launch which is happening today at the Excel Centre with the panel discussion which you'll be participating in as well, Professor Livingstone, won't you? Yes, I will. Thank you and we'll see you again shortly. Thanks very much.